Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. Hello, Global Marketing Podcast listeners. I am so happy you're here to listen to today's episode. You know, when you're doing global business, you've got to make payments across borders, and that can get really difficult sometimes. And remember, we're sponsored by Rapport International, and if you want to communicate across borders, that can be very difficult too. So you've got to make sure you have the right resources for your language and for your money. So I can talk to you about language, but I can't talk to you about the cross-border payments as much as our guests can today. Mark Ridley of Green Shoots FX has almost 30 years of working at global banks on two continents. He's worked for BNY Mellon, Deutsche Bank, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, and he started Green Shots FX in March of 2020. Do you remember what else started that, that same month? We'll dig into that. And he started because he wanted to deliver the right product, risk management tools, competitive pricing, and education to businesses of all sizes without discrimination for making these cross-border payments. So Mark, welcome. I'm so excited to hear about your journey and your recommendations because I don't know this area. Thank you very much, Wendy. <laughs> much appreciated. And I think just that intro alone, you've, you've, you've captured everything that we do. So I guess we end it right here and I say thank you very much. Well, you got to give your LinkedIn profile or how somebody could reach you or your web address or something. Oh, absolutely. 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 No, but I think you, you captured it well there. I will say for 30 years in the industry, I wasn't going to say I look good for my age, but I haven't had any hair for about 25 of those uh, 30 years. But uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm looking at you as we record this and you have no wrinkles. So you do look really good for your age. <laughs> I, I actually, I'm going to admit this. I, I, I didn't go to university. So I, I missed out on that four year worth of education. So I went straight into banking and finance at age of 18 in the UK which was really kind of the norm at that time in the late 80s, early 90s. Well, early 90s, it was 91 when I started. A number of my friends went on to university. Most of them didn't. And actually, many of my buddies left school at 16 and went straight into financial services as well. Many of them went into uh, trading floors, like into foreign exchange and, and commodity trading floors, which again was was the norm in, in London that, that those types of entities would take on 16-year-olds. They would be doing the bacon sandwich run in the morning, getting cups of tea and learning through osmosis, and then within a couple of years, trading their own book of, uh, book of clients. But of course, nowadays... Fascinating to me. Oh, okay. So yeah, nowadays, yeah. it's not the same. Oh, gosh. No, no, no. no. Okay. Like, certainly, yeah, probably in the last, I don't know, 20 years, it's, it's a bit like the US, right? You, you have to have that, that, regretfully, you have to have that university education. And I'll say regretfully, because certainly here in the US, it's incredibly expensive. It's it's over a four-year period, whereas in the UK, it's over a three-year for the same degree. And then there's obviously still no guarantee to get a job at the end of it. But I guess that's a separate topic for a separate time. But yeah, so 30 years in the industry, but uh, straight from school at 18. Okay. And so you went to work in big banks and you were running the sandwiches or how did you get into international? Well, I... So again, my, my friends that, that went into the trading rooms, they were mostly doing that at international banks. And, and so that just had a kind of a sexy appeal to me, the international side. And I, I wrote to, I think I must have written to probably a couple of hundred foreign banks that were based in the UK, international banks that were based in the UK and kept getting the standard knockback, like, no, we, we, you know, it's, it's not the right time, not the right time, not the right time. We were just coming into a recession as well in the UK. And so I, I ended up working for a, a domestic bank, NatWest, but still wanted to move into the international arena. So I gave myself a three-year target and was fortunate enough after three years to then move to, to Hambro's bank, who were more on the international side. And then it's just kind of escalated and climbed through there and working through operations before moving into relationship management and sales, which, I, which is where I wanted to be. And I managed to get there in, I think it was in the mid-90s, mid to late 90s. And I've been there, um, been there ever since. But when I when I 
joined NatWest Bank initially, I wasn't doing the bacon sandwich run. I actually joined them on their management trainee scheme, believe it or not, as an 18-year-old. Wow, that's uh, yeah. impressive. Yeah. Well, I was the, I was one of the last intake, actually. In fact, I think I was the last intake on that program. And then subsequent years going through, uh, as I say, it was at the start of a recession. And then subsequent years, the bank was looking to, if anything, to, to trim costs rather than to just continually add these 16, 17, 18-year-olds, which they were doing by the hundreds every year to literally stopping and, and kind of hiring, having a hiring freeze. But, uh, but yeah, then I ended up in, ended up in sales and relationship management, specifically in and around transaction banking, global payments, foreign exchange. And that's where I've been ever since. So what were you, so tell me what sales and international transactions, who, who were you targeting? What were you selling? So initially, the clients that uh, that I had at the bank I was at were uh, UK-based corporations, so UK-based businesses that were importing, exporting, buying and selling uh, internationally. And then we were helping them with everything from moving money internationally, collecting money internationally, loan facilities, trade services facilities, anything that was really, I guess, everything that was available by the bank as a financial transaction product we were responsible for selling and managing those products and services with specific geographic demographic, if you will. And then I moved from corporations actually to banks. So banks then became my client for the same types of product and services. When I I moved to a different institution, I moved into what is known as a correspondent banking environment. So we were selling again, global uh, payment capabilities, but to smaller banks that don't have that kind of infrastructure and ended up doing that for 20 something years, I think it was. So wait, I got I to gotta jump to something that, you know, is the ongoing debate in sales. And so it'd be interesting to have your take at that time period with what you were selling. The ongoing debate is when you're selling something, what percentage is product knowledge and what percentage is sales skills? So what would you have to say in that? The salespeople always say, well, go ahead. Why don't you answer yeah, the question? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a really good question. I, I prided myself on, on the product knowledge. I didn't ever want to be in a meeting where a client would ask a question about the functionality and I couldn't answer it. There were times, obviously, when that happens. And I think it's okay to put your hand up and say, look, I don't know the answer, but I will get back to you. Uh, and I'll get back to you in a reasonable uh, period of time. That for me then uh, like falls under the, the, the auspices of, of good relationship management as well. So if you're going to say, if you say you're going to do something, make sure you do it and do it in a timely manner. And I think having that level of product knowledge versus somebody else who doesn't is definitely demonstrating to the person that you're selling to that you largely give a crap, that you really do understand but but the relationship management really that, that goes around that, the, the effective follow-up, like I say, doing exactly what you say you're going to do uh, and not leave the client uh, hanging or high and dry. Oh, now that's interesting. So you've added a third one in there, the percent of sales, the percent of product knowledge, and then the percent of follow-through. There which- is, yeah. I mean, that, that follow-through, I think that, that kind of falls under the auspices of, of relationship management. Yeah. Um, so a number of the banks, so if I look at some of the banks that I've worked at in the, certainly those in, in the latter part of my career, they've all been selling exactly the same products and services. And I've typically been doing that to the same geographic region as well. And so you move from one institution to the other and there's, there's, there's some slight nuances. There's some bells and whistles that you previously had that you don't have. And there's some bells and whistles that you have now that you didn't previously have so it's it's largely a commoditized business it really does come down to that that level of relationship at the end of the day not always because there's there's some other buying criteria criteria that the bigger banks often bring in and that's reciprocity and so that means i'm selling you something but you're only going to buy if i also buy from you as well and those mm-hmm. types of relationships are, are, are prevalent certainly amongst the larger organizations as well okay so talk to me about the people that need to do this and that would be who our listeners are people who are getting into or into global marketing they're selling products around the world what are their biggest fears about global exchange 
I'm going to be very careful how I say this. And I'm trying to think, and maybe you can help me out. Maybe your, your listeners and viewers can help me out here. How I can put this in a bit more of a delicate tone. So I like to say, and I hate saying it at the same time, that it, it, can, it can come, it doesn't come down to stupidity. It comes down to ignorance. I don't like that word ignorance. So I'm going to try and think of a different um, naivety. Naivety. Yeah, 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 I guess so. I think that might be a better, that might be a better descriptor. You, you don't know what you don't know at right. the end of the day, right? And so foreign exchange might sound confusing because it's something that you've never been involved with maybe you know some individuals that have done it in the past and it's been a bad experience or or for whatever reason and so therefore you shy away from it but it's really not as complicated or as complex as people actually might think and we try and break that down into almost like stick figure drawings if you like just to really help you know people understand what it's about but usually we use the almost like not putting the fear of, of God into individuals, but we'll certainly highlight the fact that, look, if you're not using foreign exchange, there could still be a certain element of financial foreign exchange risk in your transaction. Even if you are a US importer and you're buying widgets from Germany and uh, you're paying in US dollars, there's still an underlying FX risk in that transaction and when we highlight that to cfos you get that quizzical look which is well how can i have a foreign exchange risk my clients are in the us i'm selling in dollars i'm buying my my widgets from germany and i'm paying in dollars i don't have any fx risk and then you highlight well what what were you paying for that pallet in dollars two years ago what were you paying for that pallet a year ago and what are you paying for that pallet now and the exporter is often, in, in this example, they might want 100,000 euros for that pallet. They, they certainly don't want dollars in Germany because, weirdly enough, they like to transact in euros. So it's <laughs> going to be converted into, into euro at some point. But in order to, in order to manage, that, manage that, well, actually, I'll come on to, there's, a, there's an issue with that, and I'll come on to that actually in a second. But the exporter wants 100,000 euros for that pallet of widgets. And two years ago, let's just keep it simple. The dollar euro rate was 1.06 when the COVID kicked in. So you might be paying $106,000 for that pallet of widgets. Then the US dollar weakened to 120 something it was, 122. So now you're paying $122,000. Today you're paying $110,000. So the exporter in Germany is always receiving 100,000 euros, but you're paying wherever the FX rate is, in US dollars. So you're paying in dollars, but your dollar value differs each and every time because the FX rate is moving against you or maybe sometimes for you. But it's the the exporter is always getting 100,000 euros. So you're paying in dollars, but you have a foreign exchange risk. So we'll talk to CFOs and say, look, in that scenario, why not just ask for an invoice in euro? In fact, ask for a dual invoice, ask for one in dollars, and ask for one in euro and pay whichever's cheaper. And I'll promise you that nine times out of 10, the euro one will be significantly cheaper, not just because of the FX rate, but because the German exporter has to pad that invoice or pad that amount of dollars in order to account for the foreign exchange risk they have. So instead of theoretically invoicing you or quoting you $106,000, as I mentioned uh, just now, they'll probably quote 110. The CFO in the USA says, well, that's fine. I can afford 110, done. Not realizing that if they'd have asked for the Euro uh, invoice, they probably would have paid 106,000 for it. So that's known as padding. And that's prevalent across most US dollar invoices that are paid by US companies. Okay, so, so I get there. it. I confused myself there. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to dig into that a little bit. So what was clear is you ask wherever you're importing to provide in the local currency and in dollars. Now, I get it the year over year, but wouldn't it be, I mean, if you pay 100 euros, you're still paying whatever the, if you pay euros, oh, because you can buy euros. Actually, you know what? I'm, I'm going to, I'll jump in there and say, yes, you're still going to have that fluctuation 
uh-huh. over the course of 12 months because of the foreign exchange rate, but you will be paying less US dollars because you're getting a better foreign exchange rate through companies like us than you'll get through the exporter adding a 5 to 10% margin or markup to the US dollar value. So they've got to manage their own FX risk, right? Because when they get paid 120,000 US dollars in 30, 60, 90 days, they don't know what the FX rate is going to be when they then convert that into euro. They always want 100,000 euros. They don't want 98, they don't want 99.9, they want 100,000 euros. So they'll inflate that dollar amount just in case the rate goes against them by the time they receive $120,000. And if it goes against them, they've got that little bit of padding in there, meaning chances are they'll still get 100,000 euros. Without that padding, they could convert that into a value that's less than 100,000 euros. But just to where I think you might be going with that, what we then say is, okay, well, look, especially now, right, where the rate is 109 on euro, why not fix that rate for the next 12 months worth of payables that you have? So it doesn't matter what happens over the course of time in the next 12, over the course of the next 12 months, you'll pay the rate that we agree today. And I think that's also another reason why some businesses don't like getting into the foreign exchange piece because they're suggesting or thinking that, well, if I ask for a euro invoice that I pay in 90 days, I don't know what the rate's going to be in 90 days either. Today, it's worth $100,000 to me. But when I come to pay it in 90 days, the rate could be against me and I might pay 105,000. Well, that's why we fix the rate today. So you'll know that if it's worth $100,000 to you today, you'll pay $100,000 for that euro invoice in 90 days time. So we that's called a forward foreign exchange. And we typically do that out to about 12 months. We can do that out to about two years, but we've never necessarily advised somebody to do that unless the rate's absolutely magnificent. Okay, which okay. Really well, hang on, hang on. You <laughs> jumped in way far. Ahead. Sorry. Sorry. So, <laughs> we got to the biggest Excitement. fears is they just don't know what they don't know. Yeah. And so then the problems that we run into was my next place I was going to go and you took us right there is they're saying, well, I don't have any risk. I just do it all in dollars, but they're actually paying more dollars than if they got both invoices. So if they go to a bank, like one of the banks that you worked at, Deutsche Bank or JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, you could go in and say, okay, I've got to pay this bill. They want a hundred thousand dollars, a hundred thousand euros, you could work with them to, to make sure they got it and you get the best rate. Yeah. So even if you, you know, even if businesses didn't want to use a company like ours, but they are. We're going to get into your company and what you solve over the banks. I just want to understand the traditional way and then we'll say why you're better. Yeah. Right. Well, the traditional way is definitely us importers paying in us dollars. That's not best practice, but that's typically what we see more of here in the US. If I was to line up a thousand companies, I'd be very surprised if less than 950 of them are paying those invoices in US dollars. Internationally, if I was to do that in the UK, I would suggest probably maybe only about 300 would be paying in their currency. The other 700 would be using foreign currency to to make their payments so it's changing that mindset don't pay in us dollars paying a currency and if you go to your bank to do that that's fine but not to jump ahead that's where we come in right yeah no 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 jump in okay so they go so they go (laughs) we're gonna have plenty of time for that so the u.s importers importers and exporters no importers Importers are paying, exporters are collecting. And so it's the same problem on both sides. Exactly that, yeah. Exporters okay. who invoice their clients in US dollars or are collecting. But they should US be doing dollars. it in local currency. I think it makes them more, more competitive, absolutely. Okay. Or we can and come we'll, on to that as a separate, yeah. separate topic. Okay, so paying in your own currency, you're taking all the risk on that, depending on what it is. Yeah, if you're paying in your own currency, it looks like you don't have any FX risk, but you really do underneath because the exporter is the one that's using their local bank to 
figure out, well, what's the dollar value for this hundred thousand euros that I want? And that's dollar value is going to go up and down, up and down, up and down, depending on what the FX rate is at that point in time. So you're paying in dollars, but your amount that you're going to pay for that pallet of widgets is going to depend on the rate that the, like I say, the exporter gets from their bank. So you, you effectively, we would say that that's still FX risk because one month you might pay 106, next month you might pay 120, you might pay 105, 115, depending on what the, the, the rate is that the exporter uses. So we want to take that risk out and give somebody the ability to pay a consistent US dollar value, if you will. So if you know that you have 100,000 euros worth of imports coming in each and every month, then today we would say, okay, why not hedge that risk? Why not buy 100,000 euros for delivery on April 15th, May 15th, June 15th, July 15th? Like do 100,000 each time if you know that's typically what you're buying and you'll get the rate that we fix today. So it doesn't matter if the rate worsens like during that period, it's completely irrelevant you'll pay the US dollar amount that we agree today. Now, this the, that we the banks or have we jumped ahead? Well, I mean, banks can do it. A lot of them don't offer it. And that's, again, one of the reasons why we decided to create Green Shoots FX. Okay, so you're so jumping ahead. I still want to know the problems in the industry. So people, number one, they don't know how to do it. Number two is they want to just pay in US dollars because they think it's easier, but they're losing a lot of money. Yeah. What's another problem that importers exports run into? I had two conversations uh, yesterday with, with prospects that, that are doing foreign exchange, but they are using a mainstream bank to do that. And so mm-hmm. the foreign exchange rate that the mainstream bank is, is charging them currently is for one of them, it was about one and a half percent more than they should have been paying. So to put that into context for every hundred thousand dollars that you are converting you're paying fifteen hundred bucks more than you should and we had a prospect who was looking at about five million dollars a month which is about seventy five thousand dollars more than they should be paying wow okay so that's what what they don't know they're paying in u.s dollars and losing money and then if they're working with their bank they don't like the rates can be so high. They can be, they can be. And look, we're not, we're not bank bashers because we need to use banks ourselves to, to move money globally. If, you know, banks are important for a whole host yeah. of different reasons, right? But again, it comes back to, you don't know what you don't know. And, you know, this particular company that we spoke to, they had no clue that their bank was charging them such a high margin or such a high markup on the foreign exchange until we tapped them on the shoulder and said, yeah, you, this is this is what's happening, and you know what? Uh, if they go back, if they end up going back to their bank, and that bank relents, if you will, and and gives them the margin that they deserve, then that's kind of a that's a moral victory to us. It's not one that pays the school fees, right. but it's a moral victory, like because we right. want to drive down price in the industry. There's there's a financial stability board that that wants countries, central banks, to focus on their global, sorry, their payment infrastructures and the global payments that their domestic banks are making wants to make them faster, cheaper, better. And mm-hmm. we want to be part of that solution. And you know, while banks are keeping margins at like in that 2% region, which is, you know, that's, that's astronomical, <clears throat> but they'll do that until they get found out and caught. And then they'll, they'll, you know, lower the price, but you know, we're happy. We're happy for that. Not all banks are like that. I mean, some banks I can, uh, think of a few that that really do come in with a, a, a reasonable margin. We see this more like that we see higher margins on foreign exchange here than I've seen in any of the banks that I've worked with across Europe. Really? So the US has higher fees than anywhere you've seen? Uh, anywhere that I've seen. I wouldn't call it fees. I call it just the markup on the foreign exchange. Like if we've had a couple of introductions to companies in Denmark and in Finland, and immediately before I even get on the phone or, or open up the Zoom call with them, I know their margin is going to be really, really good. Uh, can we beat it? Yeah, we can. But is it really worth that business moving over to us just to save a couple of hundred bucks or a thousand bucks? 
huh. probably not for them. So I know I I immediately know they're going to get really really good pricing, and we'll tell them that as well. Yeah, you know what? The 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 worst that's going to happen when we meet any prospect is we'll either confirm that the pricing is great that they're currently mm-hmm. getting, meaning that they can go to bed happy at night. Yeah, thinking, you're yeah, you're right. you're you're jumping so far ahead here. <laughs> we're still talking about problems that people are having doing it. You keep coming into solutions. I do, yeah. You know, my uh, wife yeah. uh, my wife brings me up on that one a lot. She's like, I don't want a solution. I just want you to listen. <laughs> you saw problems when you were at the banks. You saw these problems, and you came up with a solution to start your company. But I want to get into what were the problems when you were sitting in that bank before March of 2020. You know, all these years, you saw problems. So they don't know. They're paying extra. They get high rates, and in the U.S., they're particularly high markup FX markups. What That's else did a, you see? What other problems? That was that was effectively it and enough for us to think about jumping ship and creating our own business. Lack of, <clears throat> excuse me, lack of education around best practices, i.e. Uh-huh. don't pay in dollars, pay in a currency. And then when you're paying in a currency, you're being overcharged for it. Mm. That was really it. Okay. And I'll, I'll be careful how I say this based oh. on some of the organizations that I've worked at. Like I felt as though in some cases we were, we were really not incentivized to, to go to clients and say, Hey, I really like you. I want to give you a fee cut or I want to lower your uh, transaction costs. <clears throat> Excuse me, because you as a salesperson or the teams that I was managing uh, each year, the sales target goes up. So you've got to try and find that, that increase in revenue from somewhere. So it's not that we were necessarily going to clients and then like immediately gouging them, but we, we weren't going to clients and saying, look, I think you deserve a, a better margin on your, on your foreign exchange. And I was a little bit tired of that and just wanted to be able to support businesses rather than and be part of the solution rather than be part of the problem, if you will. Okay. So talk about some other mistakes that companies might have made like in going to, and we're going to get to solutions soon. So trust me, but mistakes that you saw companies making like countries that they were entering, or, you know, I know people used to open in the UK because it was part of the part of paying in euros, but now they're opening another in the continental so they can expand through Europe that way. What are some mistakes that you saw with people in managing their money? I might just, from that perspective, I might just, and I'll keep it to mistakes. I won't go into the solution. I promise you. Thank you. Thank you. Certainly from an, even from an exporters perspective where they was like selling into selling internationally and quoting to their foreign buyers a US dollar price. So you have a a manufacturing company here in the US creating a bunch of widgets, selling those widgets to Germany. I just use Germany again, selling those widgets to Germany and saying it's $100,000 for that pallet of widgets. Again, Mm -hmm. that's just, uh, in my personal opinion, that's not best practice. And many businesses don't realize that they're actually losing out on sales by quoting in us dollars again it doesn't happen like on every single case but it can happen and the reason why you're missing out on the sale is the german buyer might be soliciting three four five one or two bids if they get two or three bids in euro in their currency and they get your bid in us dollars then they're going to push the US dollar one to one side because they don't understand what that looks like. They understand the Euro quote and they can understand whether that makes sense for them to buy or not buy. If you give them the foreign exchange risk by having to then go and figure out what $100,000 looks like in 90 days when they come to pay, they're just going to push that to one side. It's fascinating. So that's just like the language and that quote, you should translate the language so they get it and you got to translate the money so they get it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you quote in uh, US dollars and they go to their bank, their bank's going to give them a, a pretty crappy indicative rate on that day. Let's just say that translates to 95,000 95, euros and they're getting bids 
in the 90,000 euro region, well, they immediately are going to push you to one side because you become now far too expensive for them. Because you've got the transaction fees built into that. So even if your quote was exactly even on the euros with the exchange rate, you've then become higher. Well, not to provide a solution to that issue, but if you were to bid in euro Mm -hmm. a lower amount and use a foreign exchange house or at least a company that could provide you excellent foreign exchange rates, you'll still get as near as damn it, the the US dollar value that you originally wanted because you're going to get more dollars for that euro invoice because of the foreign exchange rate that you use, the better foreign exchange rate that you use. So how does somebody shop the better foreign exchange rate? Yeah, unfortunately, there's not really a central, I guess, database that you can go to. Like in the in the UK, there's plenty of places you can go to if you want to find what's the cheapest car insurance, cheapest life insurance or whatever. There's not really a, a market for that in foreign exchange, regretfully. So I think it's a case of, look, have a chat for to three, four institutions and you'll immediately see the variation, the difference. And you'll, you'll generally see if you, don't, you, if you don't have banks, just banks, shall I say, then you'll definitely see a difference between a bank and a, and a foreign exchange house. And even between Not the a- banks, even the banks will, will sometimes differ. Like if you go to your local bank versus, a, I'm trying not to name drop, but like a, a larger, well-known, established international bank in the States, mm-hmm. even the rates there could be substantially different. And then if you throw in uh, a foreign exchange house, then you'll typically see that that price will be the lowest out of all of them. Okay. So that gets to be a lot of work. Just going down to your bank. Like if I go down to my, my bank, I switched. I love Middlesex Savings Bank. They're a community bank. When I broke my leg, they came to my house to take my business deposits. They were, they were fantastic. And yeah. so if I go for them to for a, a home equity, you know, a home, a home loan, you know, I'm trusting that they're working with me because they're looking at my whole portfolio of that I have my business there, I have my house there, I have a credit card there, you know, whatever else. But with FX, you can't do that with your bank. You've really got to call around and figure out where you're going to do your FX. That's that's a very good point. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's probably like that little bit of legwork leg is probably coming back to one of the questions you asked earlier on maybe about barriers and why businesses don't seek foreign exchange is because there is that, I guess there is that perception because that is mostly reality that you will have to shop around. But in all honesty, picking up the phone to a bank and saying, can I have a price for dollar euro? It's as long as it takes you to dial the number and for them to answer the phone. And do they have any minimums or size or? Yeah. So this is, this is again, another reason why we wanted to create um, Green Shoots FX is a number of businesses. And again, I've got two or three examples just in last week alone, where they're paying in US dollars to Europe because their bank here in, in the US said they don't meet the minimum threshold for revenue. So, so they have no choice but to pay in US dollars. So we, again, decided to create the business knowing that we'll help somebody if they want to send a thousand pounds to the UK then we'll send a thousand pounds to the UK. Will we make any money on that? I'll probably lose money on that, to be honest with you. But we know that overall, the total basket of foreign exchange income that we produce allows us to take on those smaller smaller entities. There are a number of banks, I've worked for a few of them, that won't actually take on any new business because they want a minimum revenue amount per annum. Yeah. And so that kind of really pushes certain businesses you know out of the picture okay so mistakes is quoting in u.s dollars and then just going to one bank and not shopping it around what other mistakes do you see again the main issues that we would that we would stumble across either like in the banks that we were working at and certainly in the conversations that we have with businesses right now and what about the xm bank i hear a lot about the xm bank that's supposed to specifically work with people who export and import and there's government supports for it. So the Exim Bank, I, I know enough about them to be dangerous. They were created in the 1940s to promote mostly exports, but also imports. But, but I know 
mostly customers that use them do so for their exports. They're a government agency, therefore backed by the government. They're not, I don't think they're a massive institution. I think as a bank, they're about four or 500 individuals, believe it or not. And they typically work with agents around the US. Essentially, they, they offer a number of different types of facility, but the way that I would really boil it down and describe it is they provide insurance against your foreign receivables. So if you are exporting to, again, Germany, if you're exporting to Germany and you have $50 million worth of foreign receivable, you can't, first of all, you can't take that to your bank and get a loan against it because banks are not allowed to finance foreign receivables unless it's backed by a government guarantee. So what the Exim Bank says is you got $50 million worth of, of risk out there, which could be the ship sinks. I know there's insurance for that, but mostly by default. So when that ship finally docks in Germany or wherever, and the buyer says, thanks for the $50 million worth of lumber, I'm not going to pay you. The Exim Bank steps in and usually covers up to about 90, 95% of the value of that transaction. So you can export knowing that you're really going to get paid at least a significant amount of it in the event by defaults. And they really specialize and focus in those like high-risk jurisdictions, high-risk countries. So if you're thinking about getting into a new market and you're a bit unsure about exporting to that market because you don't know the agents on the ground, because you don't know what the political situation is in that country, the Exim Bank can give you a lot of guidance um, around that and a lot of comfort knowing that, yep, you know what, let's let's put this stuff on the back of a ship. Let's send it down to Brazil, safe in the knowledge that we're going to get, we will get paid either by the buyer or by the Exim Bank. And yet you pay like cents on the dollar for that, that premium. I never realized that. I thought they did more foreign exchange too. I didn't realize they were just insuring. I, I don't think they do too much in the way of, in the way of foreign exchange, to be honest with you. Let's get into <laughs> solutions. You gotta, solutions, it. your favorite. Okay, you got problems. You got a bunch of people who don't know what they're doing. They're afraid of doing foreign business or global you know, sales because they don't know how to collect the money. They say, aha, I'll do it in dollars. And they don't realize they're using losing money. And then they're losing money because they're paying um, high fees. They don't know whether to shop it around. And plus they're in the United States, so they get dinged more. So you turn around, say, okay, I've got this, you know, what is it? 20, 30 years in the business. I see this huge solution. And you start right. a company during COVID, which yeah. will, that'll be the second part. How are you going to come in and save the day? I'm allowed to give a solution now. I love that. All right. Yes. So solutions. Best, practices, best practices, first of all. So if, if a company's willing to listen, we'll talk them through why they're overpaying, how they're overpaying by paying in dollars, the risks that they have, the exchange risks that they have, and then suggest the solution which is as simple as ask for a dual invoice. So you're being quoted, you're, you're calling the vendor in Germany and saying, I want this pallet of widgets. How much is that in dollars? Ask them to provide a figure in euro as well. And more often than not, if you take that euro figure to, even if you took it to your bank, you'll find that the, the amount that you're paying dollars is going to be less than the dollar amount that's quoted by the German vendor. So we'll talk about best practices, why it makes sense to ask for a dual invoice, and then how to manage that risk of having a dual invoice. So now that you might have a euro invoice instead of uh, maybe a, a dollar invoice, let's fix that rate today for payment when payment is actually due. And that could be today. That could be in you know, seven days, 30, 60, 90 days, whatever it might be. But you can fix that rate today. So you now have a known dollar value that you can use in your cash flow forecasting. So that's best practices. And it's, it's really, it, it's also the, the exchange rates. Our and companies like ours, our foreign exchange rates, if I had to put a statistic on it, nine times out of 10 are going to be better than the banks by a good country mile. So would you call yourself a FX house? You were using that word earlier. Yeah, I referenced us as a, a foreign exchange house, a foreign exchange shop. I, uh, 
money service business, some people might say, but uh, I call us a foreign exchange company. Okay. So a client would come to you and you're going to provide them all this education that you've been fabulous of talking to us about today and advise them on how to go forward. So that's all just client advisory services. You don't charge for that, right? No, we, we hope then that the, the client says, okay, yeah, that's great. I will get that Euro invoice and I'll come back to you. Mm-hmm. Thanks for bringing this to my attention. We'll come back to you. I think probably again, statistically, seven out of 10 times they'll, if they listen, seven out of 10 times of those that listen to the advice, excuse me, take that Euro invoice back to their bank. And again, I, in some respects, we're like, you know, at least you're still going to be saving some money. Mm-hmm. Because that that dollar invoice, we usually say, look, that dollar invoice has been padded by about four to seven percent. You're probably paying between four and seven percent too much by paying in US dollars. At least now you've lowered your expenses by four to seven percent just by asking for the the euro invoice. So we can go, if you will, to sleep at night knowing that okay, we've given some advice. It would have been nice for that company to come to us with the euro invoice so that we could pay it for them. They've taken it to their bank, but at least they're they're saving some money. And then three times out of ten, the uh, you know we'll be rewarded with some loyalty, if you will. the The business will bring the euro invoice to us, and then we'll we'll make that payment for them. Okay, so the companies will come to you then. Yeah. So you you don't even have a fifty percent close rate if we're taken back to. <laughs> I think that I think the reason again it comes back to what are some of the barriers if if you. Foreign exchange or global payments or managing the payments is probably one of 50 things that you have on your to-do list. So the easiest thing in the world is to get that invoice and then just throw it towards your bank and say, deal with that because I've got these 49 other things I have to deal with today rather than just sort of sticking your head up above the water and just taking a breath and saying, well, okay, well, what's the time it's going to take me to open an account with Green Shoots FX? Well, it's a 15-minute conversation and we get the accounts opened up within a day to two days maximum. And then, so if I open an account, am I making deposits in it or only when I need to exchange it? You can. Yeah, we, uh, we have clients who do run balances, but they're running the balances to support their international payment business, not because it's investment um, investment balances. So they'll keep afloat because they might want to make a, a last-minute transaction so if they have the uh, dollars with us then they can potentially trade and transact and send a euro payment on the same day for example whereas if you don't maintain that balance you've either got to get the funds to us today or we pull the funds from their regular bank account which usually means next day value which is honestly not usually an issue it's very rare that you're going to find somebody who has a payment that they have to make right here right now if they do it's because they've just completely forgotten to make it but most businesses that are buying something have an invoice and they're the invoice says look pay within seven days pay within 30 60 90 days or whatever it is so mm-hmm. you you know well in advance of uh, of when you when the payment falls due so but yeah we we can hold balances okay so it sounds pretty much like paypal you open a paypal and you, you can hook your bank to the back end. You can keep money in there. And if you make too many payments, it can pull it straight out of your bank to do it. You can do that. A couple of things that PayPal won't offer you. And again, I use PayPal. So again, I'm not here to, uh, to bash them uh, in any way, shape or form. You're not, yeah. having a, you're not having a dedicated money manager, right? So you're not having somebody pick up the phone to you and say, look, I know that you usually make payments to Germany and, and usually around this time of the month or, or a particular time of the month, look, the euro rate is in your favor right now. We suggest that you think about maybe purchasing euros today. Or, hey, we know that you typically have a payment around about now. We suggest actually not making that payment because we see the rate going more in your favor over the course of the next couple of weeks. So delay that payment. You're not going to get that level of handholding from, mm. from the likes of PayPal. And, and they, they'll also provide just a generic rate. Like I, um, just for shits and giggles, I looked at their foreign exchange rate to send some money to my, my sister got married in the UK a week and a half ago. So I wasn't able to get there, but I wanted to make a contribution to their honeymoon. So I thought just for shits and giggles, I'll have a look at what was what what would they get if I sent, you know, $5,000 through PayPal? What would they get in pounds versus what I could give them 
in pounds through Green Shoots FX. And the difference was a few hundred bucks or a few hundred pounds, should I say. So you're, you're not going to get that that FX rate. We've won some business from PayPal, actually, just for that, for that reason alone. But I like them. I use them just because it's just incredibly convenient. It's just easy to get onto PayPal, hit the button and send the money, right? Mm-hmm. So there's that. But then also, I don't believe they're offering currency accounts. So you might want to buy euros and hold those euros today, ready for a euro payment at some point. Or you might be exporting to Germany again, and you want to collect euros. So the euros will come into your euro account with us, and they'll sit there until you're ready to convert them to US dollars or any other currency for that matter. You might have a payable in Japanese yen. So you collect the euro, convert that to yen. How big does a company have to be to go from a paper? And it's not even size of. Well, you did talk about, I don't know, I'll get to the question here. I'm stumbling over my words because it's about three wrapped into one. So you've got, you were talking about some banks won't do it because the revenues aren't high enough. You talk yeah. about sending, you know, some personal money through PayPal. What's your sweet spot for companies that you would work with? Like, how do you What's measure it? Is it by spot? revenue or is it by uh, number know, of exchanges? We- we should, you know, I suppose in some respects we should, we should think about how we, how we categorize that, because at the moment we really don't care about the size of the company, mm-hmm. and it's difficult to say what size of company is most. Most companies are going to benefit, but it's what do you what do you think is a worthwhile saving to make that difference, right? So one yeah. of the companies that we that we took over from from PayPal. It was, it was really small stuff. We're probably saving them, honestly, about 50, 60 bucks a month, right? Literally 50, 60 bucks a month. But what they liked is that there's a human at the end of the phone. They know who we are and that we're going to sit with them and help them figure out ways of growing their business and managing risk as they get bigger, right? I spoke to a billion-dollar company and looked at their foreign exchange flows and we could save them about $5 million. And their response to us was, that won't even move the needle internally. Like, that's a chairman's lunch. So 50 bucks is a lot to one, 5 million bucks is nothing to another. So it really depends on, I think, your own interpretation of what's a lot of money and how much, how much do I need to save before I'm willing to make that transition to another financial services company. Not to go too far off topic, but before I left the UK, I read an article, and I've been in the US for about seven years now, I read an article that, that talked about how you're more likely to change your partner than you are your banking partners, than your banking infrastructure. And the reason is it's super easy to get a divorce. It's a pain in the ass to change bank bank providers. Now, over the course of time, that's become, I don't know about divorce, uh, but it's become a lot easier to move from one bank provider to another. And we've certainly tried to make that easier you know, from the from the documentation that we require. It's all very simplistic, very easy to understand. And once we have that and we do our you know, due diligence on the company, it's usually you know, one to two days before the relationship is uh, is actually open. And then, um, you know, with PayPal, they've been around for a while. Everybody recognizes yeah. them. They hood it, hook up to the back. What security do you have built in to know to trust that the money is there? Yeah, this is this is where I, th- I think coming back to one of the, some one of the things that we said earlier on about knowing your uh, you know your, your product knowledge, I should get a little bit more into the uh, the weeds, I guess, internally from a uh, from a technical standpoint. I'll have to get my technical guy to probably answer that question. But there is there are certain levels of encryption that prevent any kind of hack, if you will. But from a from a where are the funds located in order to protect against any kind of bankruptcy. I won't name the institution, but all of our balances are actually held with a bank in the UK. They're a global financial institution, and we wanted them there with that particular institution just because I understand UK regulation around financial services. And so the Financial Financial Conduct Authority that regulates banks stipulates that funds need to be segregated. So it basically means, long of the story short, is if we were to go bust for whatever reason or just step away because we didn't want to play in this game anymore, or even if our technology provider went bust or any part of our you know, organization, funds are secure at that organization, dollar for dollar, yen for yen, euro for euro. So 
financially you're, you'll be getting your, uh, your funds back. So there's that okay. level of security, i.e. am I at risk of losing my money? And then there's the, I guess, the technical aspects. You know, we will use a, a two-factor authentication should people want to use that. So there's, there's two gates that you need to go through in order to get onto the platform. Mm-hmm. And then, so I was going to make that short story long, but once you're also on the platform, we also offer like two, four or six size approach to that. So you can have somebody input a payment and release the payment. Or you can have somebody input a payment, but there has to be another person or two people that that release that transaction. I, I almost I, I had again I had this conversation yesterday on a on a demonstration that we were giving, uh, and I said, look, it's going to take if you want it to, it's going to take three people to commit the fraud. What I should have said was, it's going to take three of you to release a payment because that sounds a lot better. Right, right. But, but I'll, I'll it's the, same, the different sides yeah. of the plate. Yeah. Okay. So, and so you don't mention the financial institution here, but when you're working with your clients, do they know what institution it is? Oh, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, All right. And so you mentioned that you do consider yourself a foreign exchange house. Why are you better than other foreign exchange houses? You know, that's a, that's a great question. Are we better? I don't know, because there are 24,000 of them in the US and I haven't had the pleasure of meeting them all. So I, I hate when I read any business that says we're the best, we're number one. How do you measure that? Like, how have you taken the painstakingly arduous task of, of benchmarking yourself against everybody? Are we better than some of the banks? Yeah. Why and how? Because I've met probably 300 banks. I know what the pricing is for a number of organizations. Are we better than some of our peers? Yeah, because we can also beat them for price. But one of the things that, that, that we will stand by is if we agree a foreign exchange margin with our clients, then we'll stick with that margin throughout the life of the contract. And if anything, we're going to look to try and reduce that margin. Whereas, regretfully, our industry gets a bit of a bad rap because you might start off at a low margin and then you're not paying attention to those transactions over the course of time and the institution will widen them. Not mm. everybody. I'm not saying that that's everybody. I'm just saying that's what happens and it pays, you know, it pays to pay attention to that. We're, that's not us. We're not in, we're, you know, we're not in, you know, but what, why are we better? Maybe, you know what, that's a really great question. Maybe we are, maybe we're not. But what we, what we, standby is what we say we're going to do we do so if we're going to send you an email we're going to send you an email if we're going to set a price we're going to set a price if we're going to call you when the world's exploding we're going to call you when the world's exploding and and it for me it really just comes down to relationship like do you like us do you like me as a human do you like my business partners you know, do you like the the banking partners that we work with can we get on can we have can we have a bit of a giggle can we have a bit of a laugh but can we keep it professional you know it's i it's it's the same as again because it's largely a commoditized business you know that we have it's the same if i go to uh, and we went through a whole house renovation a couple of years ago it's like well why this kitchen company not that one not what not that one not that one they're all knocking out the same kitchens that are all manufactured in the same places and the designs are fairly fairly similar i'm going to gravitate towards the person not necessarily that's got the best price because sometimes you get a little bit skeptical if it's cheap Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm looking at price, but I'm also looking at like, what's my relationship with that individual? Like, mm-hmm. are they a salesperson that they're just sucking me in or do they really care about my relationship? And right. for me, it really comes down to when the shit hits the fan, not to be too crude about it. Like, how quickly can you get that problem sorted out? And that really came back to, I think, where a lot of my success came from when I was moving from one bank to another selling exactly the same product to the same clients, clients would follow me around because they knew the product was going to be the same, but it's the difference when things go wrong. How quickly mm-hmm. are you going to get it sorted out and how much, how much of a financial loss is there going to be? So it comes down to, it comes down to trust at the end of the day. And I've said this probably a thousand times. If somebody wants to use us, that's magic. If you don't want to use us, but you at least adopt a best practice and at least take 15 minutes out of your year, to actually check to see whether you're getting a fair price, happy days. That's what we want from people, really, quite frankly, at the end of the day. Take 15 minutes. It's It's not a big hard, you know, it's not a hardship to do that. At least I don't think so. Right. Right. Okay. Well, we gotta, we gotta kind of wrap it up here. And I think, you know, this question is coming. 
is what's your favorite foreign word? My favorite foreign word? I didn't warn you this was coming, huh? No, you didn't. Yeah. And foreign can be defined as any language because in some languages, you know, to somebody it's a foreign word. But yeah, we've had some some good ones on here. Oh, gosh. Like, I, you know what? I don't know as I, I can even answer that. Uh, that's a horrible question. <laughs> question. I've learned all sorts of things. Oh, yeah, it's a so Swedish word for I'm at home, I'm drunk, I'm in my underwear, and there's no you know way then, I'm going out. It, it's funny you say Swedish because I, I would say if I, I, I can actually genuinely say I think I really do like this word, and it's hoogily. It's Danish, and it just means it's it's more of a it's more of a physical thing than it is. A, it's like a, oh, it, everything's like cozy, nice, calm. Don't ask me ah. how to spell it, but hoogily. Yeah. So if you're feeling hoogily or you're in a hoogily situation, that's just kind of like a feeling. It's like Okay. A, oh. Warm, comfortable. See, I've heard of Higgy, H-Y-G-G-E. I, I, I'll have to could search be similar. that. Yeah. I, yeah, it could be very similar. And I don't, Yeah. I Let will me, check uh, that out. I like it for a couple of reasons. Number one, it sounds nice. Yes. Hoogly. And okay. also it means something nice as well. It does. It does. That wonderful, cozy, warm, comfortable, relaxed. Absolutely. I like that. Absolutely. Okay. That's a good one. See, you came up with a good one. How on about your favorite vacation? Any vacation is my favorite vacation. You told me before we started the podcast, you went on vacation and came home with a puppy. Was there you that go. your favorite vacation? <laughs> it was until we came home with the puppy. Uh, <laughs> it, it was going really well until he, he, you know, we're mixing the dogs together. My wife and I differ. I, I'm, I'm, I like the beach. I'm a big beach fan. Mm -hmm. We have an eight-year-old who loves the water. So that's great for us. My wife's very much a, look, she could do it, but for a short period of time, she's more of a, let's go and see 5,000 different sites and uh, mm. experience and live like in the culture. So and, and honestly, any it's a bit cheesy, but I'm going to say any vacation with my family is a great vacation. We have just such good fun and, and great experiences. And we're travelers as well. And that's something which we uh, we want for our son. And, and I'll, I'll encourage anybody to think about I started this when I was 29, uh, 28. It was the 30 by 30, 40 by 40, 50 by 50. You have to visit 30 countries by the time you get to 30, 40 by the time you get to 40, 50 by the time you get to 50, and so on and so forth. And that will give you the impetus to get out there and see the world. And I was talking to one of my referral partners recently. She's married to, um, she's an American. She's married to a guy who comes from India and they spend a lot of time in India. And she said, if people were to travel, there'll be a lot less racism on the planet. Mm -hmm. and I a lot less racism and hatred and conflict. Yeah. Get no, to I understand agree. other cultures, get to live in, you know, those types of environments. So my wife and I, yeah. we travel, we travel tons. So I'll be 50 next year. And I think I'm at 49, 48 <gasps> in my country. So we're getting there. Yeah. Okay. I'll have to go add up. I love that. I'll have to go add up how many. And you have to, I'm very harsh in my, counting as well so if you've been to china macau and hong kong we count that as one if you've been to the british overseas territories like uh the cayman islands and then you've been to the uk that's classed as one if you've been to really french we were very lucky to go to french polynesia we went to tahiti a few years back that's a french i think that's a french overseas territory so we count that and france's as one if you were to take all these individual islands i think i'm at like i don't even know 70 something but but yeah we we're very hard i'm very harsh in my in my accounting of countries so when i took my kids to greece and we had a layover in turkey with the layover count right that's another great question if you uh clear customs and you are legally in the country we count that or i count that so if all you'd you, have to do is go out and come back come into back in. security. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> if you stay, if you stay airside, that doesn't happen. We were flying to Peru when we were in the UK and flying through Brazil. And I thought, mm -hmm. great, we're going to check Brazil off as well as Peru. Yeah. And we get to, and we didn't even think about this, but we get to uh, passport control. I hand over my passport, the U, my UK passport, and he's, and at the same time as he's just about to stamp it. My wife hands over her passport as well, which is an American passport. And he's like, 
hang on a second. And he starts thumbing through my wife's passport. He's like, where's your visa? And then it just suddenly dawned on me like, shit, yeah. As a, I don't know if you do now, but then you needed a visa. to, Even though you're in transit, in theory, you still needed a visa. So as a result, there was a bit of this, this hullabaloo and we had to stay airside and they had to walk us through all these security gates and everything else. They had to get somebody to collect our luggage and get it on the next flight. We never officially went into Brazil, so I couldn't count it because I, I stayed airside. So, See, my, my, my rule would be different on that. I'd say the, the Cayman Islands are so dramatically different than the UK. I'd count them as separate, but I say you have to go out and at least stay there for a while and experience something. Although the airport in, in Turkey that we were at was, was completely different and culturally very interesting there's all kinds of schools of thought like if it has its own government if they have their own soccer like their national soccer, soccer team, team yeah right so like the faroe islands they're part of denmark and i've been to the faroe islands and i count that as being part of denmark but they have their own soccer yeah. team so yeah. it's like we, you got to make uh, up your own rules to set yeah, the goal you do. but I'm, i like I'm the harsh. goal yeah harsh. so any vacation <laughs> coming back to your question any how vacation. about a memorable cultural experience a memorable cultural experience. It's embarrassing or funny or awkward <laughs> or so amusing. Gonna, I referenced Peru and one of the, uh, one of the, we, we were bouncing around Peru. I think we had three or four different locations and we were very fortunate that we were going to take a, um, a river cruise on the Amazon. It's like mm. three, four days. And it was just a very small party of individuals and they're taking you up all of these different tributaries and it's all very like rustic. Like you don't feel it's very touristy. It's not, it's very like, if this boat goes down, like you're, you're done. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and if, if people want to come out of the jungle and take you, it's you're done. Yeah. You know, there's armed guards on the boat, the whole nine yards. And they took us to a school, a small village. And there was a school in the village and you could see these, these people were like, it, it was, it was embarrassing that we paid the amount that we paid to go on that tour and then we're being toured. Uh, we're, we're being given this tour of a school and this 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 neighbourhood where people just had nothing, like absolutely nothing. And we were warned about that, and everybody was encouraged to bring something. So we were bringing pens, pads, colouring pencils, post-it notes for the kids and for the school. Everybody did that. Brought books. It was really good. I've got all goosey now because it was a really good experience. And then the kids wanted to put on a little play for us. So we've all been ushered into this, like you know, into this room. And everybody's there was only about 15 of us and we were taking a seat. I was the last one to take a seat and I broke the chair. It just like cartoon style, four legs went off. So here we are like in this school that has nothing and I'm smashing everything up. Like oh it just my. like cartoon. I, I was embarrassed. I was like, I felt ashamed. So I think I, I, I just handed over like a hundred bucks. I think it was and said, like, I'm, I'm, I mean, like they, so they're taking the money and they're like, yeah, this is probably great, but it's going to cost us five days to get a chair from the nearest kind of village. But yeah, it was, that was a cultural shock for me, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So. That's wonderful. It's just another reminder to count your blessings of wherever we are and what we have. Yeah. yeah no, you know, and I'm every, for every day we're you know, very grateful for that. And again, not to, not to labor the point, but uh, my eight year old now has pulled me up a couple of times because three four years ago he might say to me hey dad I like can i get this game for my ipad first of all he's got an ipad right so mm -hmm. again we have first world problem but he's like it's only 199 i said dude you've got to drop the word only from that mm -hmm. it's not it's not only 199 it's 199 because 199 two bucks is a lot of money to a lot of people around the planet right and then as recent as probably within the last six months, my wife said, Oh, should we get that item? And I've said, yeah, why don't you just grab it? Cause it's only 50 bucks. Well, from, from the other room, it's like, Dada, it's not only 50 bucks. It's 50 bucks. I'm like, you're right. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, Those kids, they'll keep you honest. It's, you know, it's exactly that, but yeah, it, it's not lost on us, like what we have. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we're, we're so fortunate for it. and it could all you know could all disappear tomorrow but like you know we're, we're very grateful for what we have yes okay where can people find you i was going to say something funny like hiding myself in peru because i'm embarrassed but so <laughs> either coming into uh coming into me directly via email to mark 
Ridley at greenshootsfx.com. Shoots is green like the color, G-R-E-E-N, shoots, S-H-O-O-T-S. Correct. FX. F- FX, an F and an X.com. The website is the same. So uh, greenshootsfx.com. You can um, find a lot of information on there as well about global transactions, global payments, best practices, et cetera, et cetera. Some use cases uh, and our contact information is on there as well. And then we also have our LinkedIn page. At least a couple of times a week, we try and put out some blogs and some thought leadership content just to stir the pot, if you will, uh, and get people thinking. And then there's, uh, there's my own uh, personal LinkedIn page as well. People can connect to me through there. Okay. And it's Mark Ridley, R-I-Diaz and David, L-E-Y. Uh, so, I mean, if you're doing any international sales now, definitely reach out to him because as you can see, he's really willing to take the time to advise you whether you're working with him or not. And I think that's absolutely fabulous because there's so many people that could use some advice on this. So is, thank you, Mark. I really free. appreciate you being here today. Thank you. No, listen, Wendy, I appreciate the time and I'm sorry that we, we went over and I'm sorry that we went around the houses and, um, thank you again for your time you got me to laugh and got me to learn so it was edutaining which is what we try to do so listeners if you like this and you know somebody who's doing global uh business certainly send this episode along to them and i'm sure mark will join our facebook group which is called global marketing and growth and so if you want to connect with him and ask questions on there that's fantastic. It's a place where you can join the community who want to share about global marketing and growth. So thanks so much. And we hope you tune in next time. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course, on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.